You're listening to a DM podcast. You need to have the story to start with. So it's not a sort of top-down thing, we need to make a podcast, anyone got a true crime story, you know, because that just doesn't work right. It was, you know, I've got this story which I think will make a really good podcast, let's do it. And so that was the sort of plan. And, and look, I think everyone is trying to work out how do you monetize these things, you know, because you have this huge audience. I mean, more people have listened to this than have probably read all my articles in 20 years combined. G'day and welcome to Behind the Podcast with Jules and Anthony. I'm Jules and today Stocks and I went behind the podcast with Angus Grigg of The Sure Thing. Stocks, what do you think? Loved it. Such a fun podcast. Uh, Angus hit us up about three weeks ago to come on Behind the Podcast. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. I think definitely since he's getting a lot of popularity at the moment. Yeah, we thought it was a unique opportunity to try and grab someone while the show's actually really still trending up. Yeah, it's really moving up the charts at the moment. It's getting mentioned by some pretty heavy hitters. Well, let's get into it. Angus, thank you very much for joining us. Can you tell us about The Sure Thing? The Sure Thing really is a story about two young guys who are university friends and they meet up a couple of years after graduation and they decide to commit a criminal act. And so the story really follows their descent into criminality, how they... um, formulate this plan and then execute the plan, then how the uh, police chase and how difficult it is for the police to catch them, even though they're basically a couple of amateurs. And then finally, you know, the raid and the court trial and life in prison. Mm. And then then it sort of flows from there um, what it's like to get out of prison. And, you know, spoiler alert, not great, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a first for us. Because we've never um, spoken to someone while their podcast was still blowing up. Yeah. Um, I first heard about this podcast from a group chat I've got from someone who's in San Francisco, my friend Anna. And she hit me up and said, are you listening to this sure thing? I was like, what? Coming from over there? This was about six weeks ago. And then, so we also do Chat 10 podcast with yep. Lee, Lee Sales, Annabelle Crabb. They talk about it. By the time this podcast is out, it'll have been in their most recent episode. They talk mm. about it. I mean, this has captured the zeitgeist. Absolutely. Um, why do you think this podcast has captivated people? I, I think it's the scam. I think people love the how you think about a rort or a scam and how, you know, the mind sort of, you know, notionally law-abiding people would cook up a scam like this. But then I think, so I think that sort of gets people interested, but I think the other thing is it's just the betrayal, right? Yeah. How low do you have to be to betray a mate like that, right? And I think, you know, Lucas's betrayal of Chris, even though Chris has a sort of very different take than what we would have thought, um, that betrayal is really at the heart of the story. And I think people really feel for Chris and really um, sort of empathise with what's gone on there. And and maybe also a bit of them, you know, young guys doing dumb stuff, you know, like everyone can empathise yep. with that, their brother, you know, <laughs> themselves, whatever it might be. And so I think there's a bit of a feeling that maybe, um, but for a few things, um going wrong that maybe they could have been people could have been in that position themselves yeah it is relatable yeah definitely i mean uh, the sort of i don't know what maybe like the mundanity of the amount and what they were originally trying to get out of it it was so low like was so not insignificant but it wasn't a huge you know amount of money and so when you listen to the podcast at first and you're talking about you know australia's biggest financial crime white collar crime 
and then you hear, okay, we're going to try and get $200,000 and then we're out. I'm like, oh, that's not very big. Well, that should have been the first red yeah. flag, right, for Chris, because do you really break the law and potentially go to jail, ruin your career, be struck off as a, you know, working in financial services for the rest of your life for $100,000, which you'll then pay tax on, yeah. which means you'll get $50,000. I mean, it's such a pitifully small amount. And the idea that Lucas, this sort of master of the universe in training, would only would he would put all that on the line for fifty thousand dollars you know that is ridiculous right? yeah yeah that that killed me actually when they were going and then after tax like oh what you're paying tax? yeah you're actually oh, paying taxes <laughs> legitimate <laughs> legitimate ish money yeah. <laughs> the, well in the sort of twisted way of they cooked up the scam that they thought they wouldn't get caught if they paid the tax yeah but yeah without sort of making the jump that maybe the ato would say well Where's this money come from in the first place? <laughs> it is such a great podcast, though. And what you're saying is it's got everything you want. It's got the block. It's got the biggest crime, as Jules has alluded to, the Wolf of Wall Street sort of angle, betrayal, Ferraris. Rolexes. Yeah, it's really got everything. You've been an investigative journalist for the past 17 years or so. Do you want to tell us a bit about your history? Yeah, so I came into journalism after university and, you know, like all journalists sort of did a fairly mundane jobs, you know, basic reporting jobs. I did the stock market report. I did, um, you know, courts and cops and a few things like that. And um, and then really um, sort of spent most of my career in Asia, actually. So I was um, I, I had two stints in Indonesia about four years um, as a journalist there, also as a sort of volunteer um, teaching English and things. Okay. And um, and then I've spent most recently, I was in China for six years as the, the Fin Review's China correspondent. And... I guess I sort of came home, you know, having had sort of a long time away and I, I sort of thought, well, what am I going to do next? And, you know, podcasting seemed like a, a good idea, having, yeah. having had no experience or no idea of what it would involve or how much time it would take. But, you know, <laughs> it, uh, it seemed like a good idea. So how did you edge yourself into it? I mean, had you heard of a few other papers doing similar, well, not similar things, but, you know, running their own podcasts on specific stories and thought, geez, there's a well of stuff here at the Fin Review I can go into? Yeah, a little bit. And a good friend of mine is Greg Berup, who did the Who the Hell is Hamish podcast. And yeah. so I had a lot of chats to him about about his podcast and, and obviously listened to it and enjoyed it and just thought it was such a great medium to actually hear the people talk who were there and tell their story. And it's just so powerful. And I think, you know, audio is such an intimate sort of medium as well. And that was always, um, you know, appealing to me. And so when this story came along, I just thought, well, look, rather than write three or four features about it, mm. you know, let's do a podcast about it because the thing that we had, we had the people talking, we had the police, we had ASIC, we had Chris, we mm. had all these people that knew Lucas um, mm -hmm. from university and prison. So, you know, the power of hearing them talk rather than reading on the page with sort of my take on it was, you know, just makes the story so much more powerful and takes it to such a bigger audience as well. Just hearing Chris's voice throughout, I mean, you could imagine those quotes just being written on paper and it just wouldn't have the same effect, but you can hear that kind of, I don't know, regret and remorse in his voice the whole way through. It is really quite powerful hearing him. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the one of the really sort of powerful things of the story is Chris being so matter-of-fact about it. It, mm. is in, it is an unvarnished version of his story, right? He doesn't try to spin it. He doesn't mm. have a, a sort of an agenda that he's trying to push. And, you know, he's just very, very honest. And, and I think 
that is why, you know, part of why this sort of story appeals. And then I think also, you know, sitting above that is this sort of mystical figure of Lucas, right? And the fact that, you know, obviously we would have liked to talk to Lucas and, you know, we tried pretty hard. And, and, you know, at times we got fairly close to him sort of thinking about it or, you know, saying yes. And um, But in a way it sort of worked having Lucas sitting up there as as this mystical figure. Yeah. And just sort of leaving him silent in a way – I think worked for the podcast. Let's your well. imagination run a little bit further, and yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So, how did this all start? Let's go into the genesis of the podcast. You reference in episode one that Clinton Free, a Rhodes Scholar, you're on a panel for white collar crime, was it? Yeah, that's I mean, right. What uh, panels for white collar crime? <laughs> Is this a whole junket that we don't know about? Can we tell us more? You guys are going to get on the scene. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's big time. Let me tell you. Um, so, yeah, no, we we're at this uh, event for. Um, uh, you know, this sort of, it was called the Financial Crime Exchange and they have a speaker every year to talk about fraud and white-collar crime and sort of with the idea of educating people, obviously. And so I was sort of chairing this panel discussion and Clinton was on it because that is his specialty. And at the end, I said, oh, I heard you on, you know, Greg Berup's podcast, Who the Hell is Hamish? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's been really good, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, look, I think I've got a good idea. I think I've got an idea. And he started telling me Chris's story and he says, look, I think it'd make a great podcast. And so it really went from there. And, you know, um, Clinton already had a relationship with Chris mm. and he had interviewed him a couple of times before for his own research. And so... You know, Clinton made an introduction to Chris for me and, you know, but it was really crucial having that link with Clinton and that really allowed, sort of gave Chris some comfort that mm. we would treat his story appropriately and not, you know, totally sensationalise it and things. Yeah. And what was your pitch to Chris? Look, I said to him that um, you, you, you're a sort of talented young guy, you had a pretty good career ahead of you you know you were the smartest kid in your maths class that you know the smartest kid that this your maths teachers ever taught you know you have a lot of potential and you know you did a really dumb thing when you were young now you're not Robertson Crusoe there we've all done that Um, and I sort of said look you can you can own it you can be honest about it and you can tell your side of the story and that gives you the chance to um it's not really redemption, but to 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 have people understand your story and then it gives you a road back. So you can sort of hide in the cupboard for the next 15 years and pretend this never happened and be the guy that someone sort of whispers about at dinner parties. Mm. Or you can go out and own it and you say, I did a really dumb thing. I went to jail. I paid a huge price for it, yeah. but I'm not a terrible person, right? And And I think that in the end, Chris was quite reluctant, but I think- in the end, that resonated, and that's probably why he came on board. And, you know, I was very, very nervous that Chris wouldn't like it and that it would be bad for Chris and that my sort of pitch to him, you know, would turn out to be bullshit, basically. Um, mm. And, look, I think in the end, um, it actually has worked out well for him. And, and I think the thing that I've enjoyed most about this podcast is he seeing the sort of growth in Chris, if you like, his sort of growing confidence that he has, you know, people coming up to him and saying, I'm really proud of what you've done. I, you know, good on you for, you know, for doing this and and for owning this. And so I think he's, you know, in, you know, he's realised that you can make a mistake, own up to it and, you know, then go on with life. Yeah. And, and that's been the really good thing about it. Did you keep uh, Chris in the loop throughout making the podcast and sort of send him any snippets? And Not really, no. We 
we, I would send him the episode the night before it was published. and But apart from that, we kept him fairly separate. He didn't really have any editorial control. He had no editorial control. And we we told him what we were doing, you know, how many episodes we were going to make and things like that. But we didn't... Um, no, no, he, he wasn't really involved in that. And he really, so there was a huge element of trust for him yeah, in, you know, just allowing us to tell his story and cut it in with all the other elements that you have in a sort of story like this. Yeah, I can see the risk because, I mean, you hadn't done a podcast before as well. So <laughs> yeah, you're, you're trusting the process as I, well. I, I didn't tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Experienced podcaster here. <laughs> that slide was missing. Yeah. Just, yeah. I do, I've done these all the time. <laughs> Got two Walkleys. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. How hard can it be? Bit of audio, cut it up. Exactly. <laughs> Put some sound in. Yeah. When you were giving him the pitch, were you expecting at that stage maybe that you might be able to get Lucas as well? And did you say to him, look, we want to hear from both of you and get both sides of the story? Or was it very much like, I think we're probably only going to be able to get Chris at this stage? We went into it thinking that we'd only get Chris and that maybe as a story developed you know maybe by episode three or four we might get lucas and tickle his ego yeah exactly and we'll just you know give him this sort of opportunity to respond to a few things and if the podcast sort of got a bit of take up you know and his friends were talking about maybe he'd want to come on Mm. and that obviously didn't happen but well, episode eight, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. I mean, in terms of that, you've, you've alluded to the amount of episodes you were thinking about doing and, and mm. you know, at various stages, maybe he might come in or, or you mm. know, make a contribution. How did you decide, okay, it's going to be six episodes initially and, you know, running those out, did you want to leave a bit of flexibility to add to the story? Yeah, it was a very unscientific process. I, yeah. just, I just had in my head that I thought six episodes would be a good amount of episodes to do. Great. Having no idea, having never really written a script before or having any idea about how to do it. And look, we sort of sketched them out and, and, it, and it actually worked at about six because I thought six episodes you need to give people time to get into it and to, you know, have a sort of long enough form to tell the story. And then... We also, I mean, one of the things we were conscious of is that we don't want to record them all at once. A, because it's way too much work and we'd never get it done. But also because the story will change. And that was what we always wanted to do by, you know, rolling them out week to week, which we got quite a lot of criticism for. Everyone's like, you know, it's not 1982 here. You know, you can, you know, dump them all at once. Yeah, do the binge release. Mm. Exactly. And so, but what we were very conscious of is we wanted to give ourselves the opportunity to have the story change. And at about three or four points, we totally rewrote episodes. We was looking before, and it's after episode four, you have a special announcement. <laughs> um, that was really interesting. I mean, did you see a sort of spike in interest when you were doing things like that? Yeah, that's right. Well, the special announcement was because someone came forward, yeah. right? This person that knew Lucas at uh, university came forward. And so that you know, we really had to tear up um, that episode and rewrite it because it totally changed what, um, you know, what we had sort of understood to be the narrative. And and it gave us this sort of really piercing insight. And, yeah, the, the special announcement, it, it seemed like a sort of marketing gimmick, but it was a great sort of way to say to people, hey, we're still... This is live. This yeah. is live. Yeah. We're doing it. And, you know, the, announce, the, the interest spiked particularly after that. Absolutely. Yeah, unreal. It's um, it's funny. I mean, you said this is your first one that you've done. 
but it's so rich you know it's it's a really great story and you use some really interesting audio devices as well i think particularly the the one that impressed us was when you ring the bell at the start just to really give the indication of how long or how little time it took for them to make you know this amount of money i think we were considering ringing a bell at the start of this and at the end we could tell people we haven't made that much money <laughs> two dollars out of google ads. That's it. <laughs> but where where did those kind of ideas come forth uh, yeah and what's a team like at afr so you know my biggest piece of advice about doing a podcast was get a really good producer and um so i totally lucked out um with a guy called lap fan who is an absolute genius and so all those you know audio techniques and putting the story together in different ways that was all him so you know given that I had never done anything like this before, um, you know, we needed someone who had a, you know, just a great sort of creative brain for, mm. you know, putting, for producing, but also for directing, right? He's uh, He's got an acting background, um, you know, been in, you know, quite a few shows and plays and things like that. And so he was also very good at, um, directing me in the voiceover and I think that was um, you know it killed me at the start because he was like no no we just don't have it we don't have the tone the tone's not right you need to say it with this in your mind and you know I actually lost my voice um, right. for a while because you know we were doing so many takes to try and get it right um, and then by about sort of episode three I, I sort of understood what the tone needed to be but it took a long time because I didn't had I never had any voice training I had no idea really what I was doing and so he was look he was you know the absolute key to this podcast and also just you know so enthusiastic and into it and every every episode he'd say oh, I think this is the best episode you know great so and you he, just got that encouragement as yeah, you go along yeah he's like you know so, so for seven seven you know seven nights before we released the episode oh this is definitely the best one this is you know and i'm like how are you still so enthusiastic i'm i'm exhausted you know and he's just still charging along thinking we can do this what about doing that within an episode he's credited as being an actor is he doing any of is he playing any of the parts in the episode or no he didn't so he was the producer um and obviously the editor and sort of directing in terms of um, you know, the voice and things like that. But no, he sort of brought in a few of his mates who were actors and we got people from around the newsroom to play the barristers. We got our old lawyer from Fairfax to play one of the other barristers. <laughs> and uh, so we just sort of drew everyone in. But he, you know, he obviously managed that whole process. Okay, my mistake. Yep. Yeah. Being the first AFR podcast, how did you go about funding and, and bringing on McGrath-Nickel, but also recording the thing? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I we had no idea how much it would cost, actually, and we still don't really know what the budget uh, has worked out. If we're over or under, we're just sort of politely ignoring that. And um, great PR, great PR. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and um, but no, so we were very lucky that the Herald um, and the Age have a big sort of audio group there. So we were able to sort of tap into that, and that's where Lap came on board. So he's a sort of producer for the Herald and the Age and their various podcasts. So they're making some good stuff over there. Yeah, exactly. And so um, Tom McKendrick, who's the sort of head of audio, he, um, you know, he was very involved in the sort of early, I guess, commissioning of the podcast and helping out, you know, how what we need to do. And then he assigned lap to us. Um, so and then we were able also to use, you know, all their gear and their studio up on level six in our new building in North Sydney. So and also, I mean, the other great thing about being part of that sort of nine group now is that we were able to oh. use all their audio. Right. So mm. so all the I mean, the librarians, you know, were getting, you know, 15 emails from us every day saying, can we have this news clip? Can we have this that news clip? And so, you know, without 
without that, it would have been really, really difficult as well because you're trying to you know pinch bits of sound off the internet which are not quite right and things. Yeah, so, and, and the also librarians do, do get special shout outs. For yes, the- <laughs> exactly. I mean, they were hugely helpful and you know really, really good as the process sort of went on. So on the monetization side of things, you've got to sponsor McGrath Nichols. True crimes traditionally incredibly popular but quite difficult to monetize in terms of brands wanting to get involved with true crime it's not always been the easiest yeah. thing how did that come about was that over to the sales team or did you oh, i actually knew um the guys from a nickel um i've sort of know reasonably well because you know they work in sort of they do their own investigations mm. around sort of you know financial chicanery so you know they're quite helpful as you know liquidators traditionally are good sources for journalists and um and so look i knew uh, matt Fien at mcgraw nickel um who runs one of their sort of practice groups there and so look i just said to him um actually as sort of the you know coronavirus recession was uh you know descending we we actually had a sponsor lined up and they just said look sorry we can't you know we can't um you know, we just can't do it, right? And I just said to Matt, look, do you want to be involved? And he, you know, he just said, yeah, sure, we'd love to be, you know, and he gave us a bit of money and um, which gave us the sort of seed funding to, I think, basically make it, we weren't going to make money, but we weren't going to lose money. So does the AFR have an overarching strategy or did you say, look, <laughs> I want to do a podcast, look what's going on over here, look at who the hell's Hamish, look at the Pongsu, let's go? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think, yeah, so Richard Baker also was really helpful. He's a good friend of mine. And, you know, he's, you know, that Pong Su was just a, you know, brilliant podcast and so, you know, well put together. And I sort of, you know, I guess I saw that um, and my pitch to the AFR was, look, this these things are really broad, right? You get people who have never read an article from the Fin Review or, you know, gone onto our website or probably even know who we are, they will listen to this. And so this is a chance for us to sort of broaden our audience and get people to sort of understand that the Fin Review does more than share markets, you know, and a bit of politics and international affairs and things. So that was the, really the pitch. And But it was more really, you know, and this has always been the way I've sort of worked as a journalist, it's you need to have the story to start with. So it's not a sort of top-down thing, we need to make a podcast, anyone got a true crime story, you know, because that just doesn't work right. It was... You know, I've got this story which I think will make a really good podcast. Let's do it. And so that was the sort of plan. And and look, I think everyone is trying to work out how do you monetize these things, you know, because you have this huge audience, you know. More I mean, more people have listened to this than have probably read all my articles in twenty years combined, right? And um it's you know, I, I do think you know, the industry, we need to work out how to monetize these things because they're such a great medium for storytelling. And I really feel that, you know, this is, you know, you don't write a book anymore, you make a podcast, right? Mm, and agreed. I think it's the future of long-form journalism is through podcasts. So yeah. we need to find a way to make it pay. Yeah, yeah. What's it been like with the audience when you released? I mean, it's got a massive following now. When did you start to see it pick up? Actually, the first sign that we were onto something was when we released the first trailer. And You did so, two trailers, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and that was, you know, once again, Lap's idea. He said, let's, you know, let's release these trailers to... Um, to tell people this is not your sort of traditional fin review story. This is a bit broader than that. It's and it's going to be sort of really high production values. And so, I think we released the first trailer and it went to sort of number three on Apple within about sort of a day and a half. And we're like, it's just a trailer, you know, it's a minute <laughs> twenty or something. And so that was the first sign of wow. Like I think, you know. 20, 25,000 people downloaded in the first day. And it was quite early too. That was the fourth of Feb, mm. and then you did a second trailer. Two weeks later. Yes. So you really built some buzz. Yeah, I think so. And I think also one of the things 
which was really, really helpful, was um, actually using the sort of FinReview website as a platform to to really launch the podcast. So you had this inbuilt, really loyal readership from the FinReview who was who were the sort of base audience for it. And then they, um, you know, this is my sort of extrapolation, but I, I, I figure that, you know, they got interested in it and then they told their friends who told their friends. And that's, so it built out from the FinReview um, audience first, I think, was how, you know, and I guess that shows the sort of, the value of having a sort of big media organisation behind you. Yeah, that's right. You. It's got a bit of clout and credibility associated yeah. with it. For people who might not be readers, they certainly know the name. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's worked, well, the microsite you've got around Sure Thing, I spent more time, that's the most time I spent on the AFR website because you, normally you're worrying, I mean, I've got a, uh, a password, but the reality is just cr- clicking around from thing to thing without actually getting told to put log in. Yes. I've no, I think people get to actually experience AFR to such a large degree and then you scroll down to the end of the article suggesting other related articles that are just on the main site. I think it's a really good gateway for the AFR to basically attract people to the type of journalism you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think the Fin Review has a bit of a branding problem in the fact that it has financial in its title, right? So actually, you know, I would argue we have probably some of the best political coverage in the country. You know, our international affairs and, you know, um, foreign uh, policy coverage is probably the best in the country, um, as well as our, you know, business and, and all the rest that goes with that. But people can't often get past the financial side of it and think, <laughs> yeah. oh, God, it's going to be too complicated. I don't know anything about share markets. I'm mm. not interested in that. You know, mm. whereas there's a whole sort of other side to the mm. paper as well. And it's nice having a microsite where you can go into about 10 different articles as opposed to, oh, I saw something on Google News, click through, oh, Pay- can't, can't read it, paywall, yeah. blah. So yeah. it's a nice way to get people actually into the space. And we also thought that given there is quite a few characters in the story and there's quite a few dates and, and things like that, it'd be good to give people a reference point. So where they can, you know, there's a timeline, there's a cast of characters, there's some of the stories that were written at the time. And so you, you could sort of people who maybe didn't necessarily understand or, you know, wanted more information could actually then go to the site and and sort of, you know, do their own bit of research and things like that. And, you know, just from our sort of analytics, it, it looked like it was actually a pretty popular thing to do. People, you know, there was pretty good click-throughs on the yeah, site. Yeah, do a things. bit of a deep dive once you've heard the initial audio. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, any good sorry, non-fiction podcast I listen to, if it's good, I'm going straight on online. And to have that resource sitting there, and it really helps to, oh, that's what Chris looks like. Okay, cool. Okay, now I've got a mental image. I had one, but now I actually know who it is. And you start rolling through it. It makes I think it really enriches the process and the experience. Yeah, and it's it's the way to use I guess use the best of all the mediums, right? And so you can refer mm. back to um, you know you've got the sort of stories in the paper, you've got the website, and then you've got the audio. Yeah. Do you think this podcast has TV potential or film potential, screen potential? Look, we've had a few approaches. Um, I've been a little bit sort of preoccupied with other things, so I haven't really um, taken them forward. But yeah, no, I. I I do think there was um, – we've had a couple of approaches, um, you know, to do sort of limited series scripted drama. Um, mm. And, look, I think that would be great. Mm. And, um, you know, it would be great to see someone else put, you know, their spin on your story. And, you know, um, from a few people who have done this, you know, I wouldn't be particularly involved in it. You know, I don't know, I have no idea how to write a drama script or anything like that. But, you know, I would love to be part of the process some way and, and you know, I think it would be great. So you don't want the Angus character in the story being played by? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if it was Chris Hemsworth or someone, maybe I'd you know, accede to that. But uh... the way it's set up with AFR, do you, if it was to go to screen, would you have points, I guess, or IP in that situation? I think 
The AFR owns the IP okay. to the sort of sure thing, um, you know, as I sort of did it on their dime. I think that's how it works. Um, I think often the they sort of, you know, you have a role as a sort of producer or something like that, which basically helps them understand the story and the sort of the sort of technical elements and the factual elements of the story and sort of how it might be put together um, rather than actually having a lot of input into, you know, how it's shot, of course, or anything yes, like that. Yes, you know? yes. Are you starting to think about the next podcast that you'd potentially like to do? Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of people have said, well, what's next? What are you doing yeah, now? Right. And, um, yeah, look, I've done a, a few um, stories before I went to China. So about 10 years ago, I did one particular sort of series of stories, and I've always thought I'd like to do some more with that. And so um, I'm exploring how that might work and um, how you could make it into a podcast and, um, and you know, but, but also trying to understand the model, right? Like how do you – I think you can do a sort of a one-off that doesn't really have a business model behind it. But if you're going to do it uh, longer term, you need to have some sense of what the business of podcasting might be. So maybe I'll ask you guys about that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can tell me. Yeah, the way the story unfolds and the audience participation really leads to some interesting narrative turns. And without spoiling too much – you were able to wrap such a great bow around it. Did you have any idea as to what would come of it for Chris? I did have an idea that um, it would lead to some sort of professional opportunities for him. And I thought that it would, if people responded to his story the way I did, there would be some opportunities. And, you know, wonderfully that that has turned out for him. And, um, you know, it was slightly embarrassing telling my editor, look, actually, we're going to make a seventh episode of our six-part podcast. But, you know, that's... Uh, that's why, you know, if Lucas came forward, it would have been even more embarrassing. You know, the eight, I don't know how we would have explained the eighth episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though. That's very much a thing with true crime. And your podcast is quite exceptional because it hasn't happened. Because something like a serial, you go, okay, serial, fantastic, Adnan, all this sort of situation goes on. And then the conclusion is, well, he's in jail and he's waiting trial. Yeah, and he's oh, he's even it. waiting to appeal, and he's been mm. in jail for fifteen years. And go, oh, okay. It sort of peters mm. out, but mm. with yours, it has actually gone full circle. And as Jules said, beautiful bow at the end of it, going, oh, that's a complete story. Yeah, and that's really rare for a true crime situation. Yeah, and I think people were, you know, rooting for Chris all the way through, and so, and felt that he had been hard done by in a way that he look he'd made a stupid he made a stupid mistake and he didn't think about it enough the decision but at the end of the day he had paid a huge price for that and that he deserved a sort of another opportunity he deserved a second chance right and so for that to happen at the end was yeah that yeah, was fantastic yeah can we talk about the betrayal for a minute because he really you push quite hard on that and that seems to be the sort of one of the key elements of the story and i asked my friend over in san francisco i said look meeting angus any questions she goes the betrayal like well, how does this work i mean there's Many schools of thought. It's you know, were they? Um, is that his personality type? Has he just owned it and gone? This is fine. Has he made peace with it? Um, was the time in jail when it was basically looking after each other? And oh, look, I'm indebted to this guy. I mean, what? What in your opinion is the reason, or is it a personality type? What's the? I think there's a sort of element of all the things you mentioned. I think firstly, um, Chris um, doesn't want to talk. Um, or doesn't want to really let himself go too deep into the betrayal because um, he, in his own mind, that he he was just as much at fault as Lucas was. While Lucas pitched him the idea, he went along with it and he knew he was breaking the law. Mm. He knew it was illegal. So I think there's an element of, of him owning his crime and to own his crime, he can't really blame anyone else. Mm. Um, I think also, though, in 
taking sort of total ownership for it, there is an element that he doesn't want to let himself think of what might have been. And I think he he says himself that he can't really move on if he's always blaming Lucas and blaming Lucas for betraying him. And, and so I think that's an element of it as well, um, that he just can't let himself go there. And then I think, you know, probably also there is just this sense that um, Chris is hadn't really sort of dealt with it in a way. He hadn't really allowed himself to think of it. And, and, and you're absolutely right, that time in jail where there are, you know, 93 days or whatever it was in a cell together, 18 hours a day in a maximum security, you know, really tough jail, they needed each other. And, you know, they were thrown together. And, you know, I think that bond is still very strong. Even though they're not friends, they're not in touch anymore, I think they looked after each other when they were in a really bad place. Yeah, absolutely. And that counts for something that he's not going to, you know, sell out his mate or, you know, sort of speak badly of his mate. I mean, interestingly, you know, the person that came forward um, who was in prison... Uh, with Lucas and Chris um, at Beechworth, you know, says that, um, you know, Lucas was putting around prison that, you know, they wouldn't have got caught if not for Chris. So Forgetting his burner phone. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So the, the loyalty doesn't seem to yeah, have gone the other way. Yeah. yeah. And still processing it, yeah. clearly. Yeah. It was fascinating hearing about the prison system now as well. And, and, you know, the idea of redemption and that once someone's paid for their crime, then, you know, that's it. It's a clean slate and you go off and you're able to do whatever. But also just things like integration back into society and through the football club that Lucas was a part of. I mean, I had no idea that those kind of initiatives happened. And it's just fascinating to hear that. Yeah, that was a really nice little side story. And, and you know, we Clint and I had a great trip to Beechworth and, and that footy club, you know, the Beechworth Bush Rangers, you know, Ned Kelly country. I mean, they were great guys. And I think what we were trying to show there is that if these guys who are, you know, from, you know, middle Australia, if you like, country Australia, if they can accept uh, that these guys deserve a second chance, if they can sort of accept that people have made a mistake and you can move on and you accept them as part of your footy club and even give them a job after... You know, if they can do it, then probably the rest of us can as well. And because they're not, you know, thinking about, you know, higher issues of crime and punishment and all that sort of stuff. They're just like, they're okay. These guys are okay. They're nice guys. Not your average, you know, not what I would have thought prisoners would have been. And so that was a really nice little story. And, you know, those guys were fantastic. And and I think... You know, for a lot of the prisoners, I imagine that would be the highlight of their week. Oh, would absolutely. Be going to footy it? training yeah. and playing on the weekend. And, and it does help them, you know, integrate back into society. Yeah. Did you get a lot closer to Clinton after that trip as well? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Close quarters? And- yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, look, he's a great guy, right? He's a, um, you know, very smart guy, you know, Rhodes Scholar, you know, running the business school at Sydney Uni and things like that or program within that and um so look he was and i think he brought a huge amount to the podcast his understanding of white collar crime and you know his very sort of sympathetic view of it and you know he's no sort of bleeding heart right and um but he's looked at the evidence he's you know spent his life traipsing around prisons in the u.s and australia and he has a very strong belief that um you know the criminal justice system is not really working and um, and we should just say also there it's not just um, we've had a little bit of sort of not so much criticism but just people saying look 
you know, it shouldn't just be for white collar crime. It's for really non-violent crime. So for where people are not a, um, you know, a threat to society, longer prison sentences do not work. And that is the irrefutable evidence. But this it's not a discussion any politician wants to have. No. There's zero votes mm. in it, literally, because prisoners can't vote. And, <laughs> um, and so, but it is a really interesting idea that can we as a society move beyond the sort of punitive nature of the criminal justice system to say, to be smarter, to think about, well, you know, yes, this person should spend some time in jail, but does it need to be... 10 years? Does it need to be five years? And and that's something, you know, that was another sort of element of the podcast, which I found really interesting, that sort of intellectual debate around that. Mm. And you set that up quite early with the first episode, you were talking about the male brain, the early 20s male brain being, as my aunt is always telling me, all men under 25 are idiots. It it explained a lot, didn't it? (laughs) Put a lot of my early behaviour in context. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she was great too, wasn't she? Juliet, um, the psychologist. And um, You know, that did, um, it wasn't really meant as an excuse, but it was to try and understand, you know, why, you know, young men, you know, make some really bad decisions. And, you know, the fact that your brain isn't fully formed is, um, it's quite instructive, (laughs) right? absolutely. (laughs) Something a lot of people have obviously suspected for quite a long time. And told me. (laughs) (laughs) And how has the audience been in general? I mean, you said like a little bit of criticism. Has it been accepted generally positively? And how do people get in touch with you to pass this on? Yeah, Yeah. look, actually, I mean, look, the reviews overwhelmingly have been very positive. Um, And, you know, lots of, um, I think lots of people have sort of liked that it's a story it's a crime story but it's not a violent crime story so it's a it's a it's a, you know a slightly different true crime story um but yeah no look we've had lots of emails and twitter and and texts and um you know i mean i think the thing that is most sort of flattering really is that people are so engaged right people i mean someone even wrote in and said look uh in the uh credits at the end your grammar's not quite right when you say you know you know, the sure thing is written by me, Angus Grigg. It should be this. And you're like, wow, you're listening. <laughs> you're listening through to the credits. I'll take that as a huge compliment, you know. Absolutely. So speaking of listening, we'd like to get into what our guests are listening to. Do you want to give us a couple of podcasts that you're into at the moment? Yeah, so I'm really um, into the uh, – I think it sort of comes under the power um, title, but it's called The Maxwell's. And it's about, you know, the story of the Maxwell family and, you know, Sir Robert Maxwell's sort of rise um, and, you know, skullduggery in the UK and obviously linking to, you know, his daughter uh, and her, you know, troubles with Jeffrey Epstein. But that is a, you know, really well put together podcast, very interesting. And I think that sort of shows how podcasting can be so, um, you know, can bring a historical element and tell this really compelling story. And, and and in such vivid detail, I mean, that podcast, they talk about Robert Maxwell before he used to get on his helicopter, he used to take a piss over the side of the building and he literally pissing on people down below. And you're like, wow, you know what? I mean, that just tells you everything you need to know about him, right? It's, it's fascinating because that... It was, what, the one about Epstein was such a well-known podcast, but then you've got this other element to the story, which then can be explored. Well, you get this history that leads you into a contemporary event. It's yeah. fantastic, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and the other one is the uh, the Crypto Queen, which mm-hmm. is the uh, the BBC one about um, a former sort of McKinsey consultant who um, 
turns in this massive cryptocurrency scam. And I, I think, look, what both of those podcasts or what attracts me by uh, to me to both of those podcasts is the fact it's the scam, right? I mean, that is, and sort of the sure thing is a bit like that as well, right? It's like, how do these, how does this sort of mind work to sort of dream up a scam like this? And I think all those three have an element of that in it. Well, finally, we like to ask any advice for up-and-coming podcasters that you would give after your recent experience. Get a really good producer <laughs> is the first uh, first bit of advice. I think, um, secondly, you know, you've got to start with the story, right? You can't start with a sort of top-down view of, I'm going to make a podcast. You've got to find the story first and then build it out. And, you know, it has to be built out with one central character usually and you need to secure that talent first and then you can build you know things around that so we had Chris and then we built you know the police and ASIC and Clinton and Juliet around it to sort of flesh out the story but without Chris you have nothing right Well, thanks very much for the advice, Angus, but most of all for coming on Behind the Podcast. We enjoyed hearing all about the show and wish you all the best for the future. 